To walk the road of peace, sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict. Tommy said, Mr. President, you're wrong. Now that takes a lot of guts. I'm for peace and quiet, Mr. Lude. It's why I came to the UN, quiet diplomacy. Yes, welcome to our March edition of A Foreign Affair, our monthly discussion about big shifts happening in the international arena. And uh, there are things in our hemisphere, a little closer to home, believe it or not, um, particularly in Asia. Joining me to discuss these are two keen observers of Asia. Amanda Hodge is the Southeast Asia correspondent for the Australian newspaper. And Hervé Lemahieu is the Director of Research at the Lowy Institute. Welcome to you both. Hi, Geraldine. Thanks, Geraldine. Let's start with Indonesia. In 2019, it was announced that the country's capital would be shifted from Jakarta to a new purpose-built city in Borneo. Progress on the controversial move is now underway, and earlier this year, the new city got its name, Nusantara, which means archipelago. Now, Amanda, you recently wrote a fantastic piece about this move, which I have been sort of following. I honestly didn't know whether it would ever happen. How big an undertaking is this? Uh, It's massive. I mean, it's massive, you know, for any country to build a new capital city, but to do it in the heart of Borneo or, you know, 200 kilometres from the, yeah, Mm -hmm. in, in, uh, Indonesian Kalimantan is extraordinary, um, and it's uh, it's starting from scratch. You know, there's there's the site they've chosen is between two cities. There's nothing there except um, degraded plantation forests, and um, and little villages, little um, subsistence villages of of paddies and and Dayak people, basically. And um, what about the issue of the environmental concerns that surround it. Uh, I mean, Charles Darwin described, I think you'd put this in your piece, uh, the island as one of a one great luxuriant hothouse made mm. by nature for herself. Uh, now, I have had the incredible privilege of actually going up one of those rivers and seeing the um, uh, orangutan in their natural environment. And the thought that mm. this city, I think, is 150 k's, is that right? Or 200, 200 k's mm. from it, honestly chills me to the bone because I cannot imagine that they're going to be able to contain the Indonesian capital. Uh, what are the implications for the vegetation and the, the natural environment there? Yeah, <clears throat> there hasn't been a lot of environmental um, assessment studies done. In fact, we tried to find the thorough EIS, the Environmental Impact Statement, that the government has allegedly done, and it doesn't seem to be public. Um, uh, the environment groups in Indonesia are trying to do it. The problem, look, it's being the, the site that's been chosen has cannily been chosen in an area that has already been thoroughly degraded over decades. So mm-hmm. pristine um, rainforests that have already been felled to make way for eucalypts, um, for pulp and paper and for palm oil. So the area they've chosen is, is quite heavily degraded and it has already had impacts on the surrounding water bodies, et cetera, and in the mangroves. But... Um, the impact that a capital city has as it expands on its perimeters is something else. And um, there's been articles that have tried to extrapolate what that will be by looking at other capital cities. Um, well, look at Jakarta. And, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the prognosis is not great. Of course it's not. You know, I mean, when you think about Borneo, 
Um, you think about, you know, rhinos, um, elephants, orangutan, leopards. These are all critically endangered species. We're also talking about rainforests that are some of the last um, intact endemic rainforests in the world that are actually the lungs of the Southern Hemisphere. So, you know, the, the potential impacts are incredible. What Jokowi or Joko Widodo, who's the president of Indonesia, is saying is that he wants this to be a flagship green forest city where if you, I mean, he said the other day, if you don't like walking, if you don't like taking public transport, and that pretty much sums up everybody in Jakarta, um, <laughs> then you, you, you shouldn't move to Nusantara. Um, you know, because it's going to be uh, green energy, he says. It'll be mostly hydro and, um, you know, and that has its own implications. And it's going to be public transport, electric vehicles and pedestrian walkways. That's the, that's the thinking behind it. But it is, you know, the problem is everybody is worried about corruption in Indonesia. And we already know that most of this land is owned by... Um, moguls, palm oil moguls, you know, the owners of conglomerates that were the beneficiaries of the Sahato era of cronyism. So, you know, how they're going to go from um, the crony era to the sort of green forest city, mm. you know, a virtual circle, virtuous circle, I don't know. I mean, all power to them. I, I, I hope very much that they they achieve it, but uh, it's a big uphill task. And this, of course, is because, frankly, you know, Jakarta's sinking, and, and no joke, actually, um, yeah. and, it, you know, it, it doesn't work, really. It doesn't work. Have a, um, it, yeah. It's projected to cost about $45 billion. I mean, what do you assess a project of this scale tells us about uh, Joko Widodo's presidency and, I suppose, 21st century Indonesia? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's a presidency that hopes to transcend time. I mean, this will be something that he hopes will still be around in 100 years, right? And so it depends on what your uh, frame of reference is. I think it's, it, it tells you a lot about Jokowi um, and and Indonesia that he announced the move uh, to, the, to for a new capital before they even did a sort of assessment of the feasibility study, basically, which they commissioned McKinsey Consulting to do. Um, but on the other hand, you know, moving capitals is rarely a, a rational thing to do from a cost-benefit analysis within a sort of five to ten-year prism. I mean, no... Uh, you know, big projects like the creation of Brasilia, Canberra, Naypyidaw, um, uh, Abuja. These are all political projects. These are not economic projects. These are, they speak to a political vision or political necessity more than they do um, mm -hmm. economic necessity. So I, I'm actually a bit more optimistic that in the long term, this will be a good opportunity for, for Indonesia to rebalance decentralized. This will not be a new Jakarta. This will not be 10 million people um, living mm. on this island. I think it will be an administrative capital, much like Canberra works. Or uh, much know, like Putrajaya works outside Kuala Lumpur. Yes. Okay, let's turn to how the region is responding to the U Ukraine crisis. And in particular, I'd like to focus on Singapore now. And I'd like you to hear the Singaporean Foreign Minister Vivian Balakrishnan speaking about how Singapore has decided to stop fence-sitting very definitely. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a clear and gross violation of the international norms and a completely unacceptable precedent. This is an existential issue for us. Ukraine is much smaller than Russia, 
but it is much bigger than Singapore. A world order based on might is right, or where the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. Such a world order would be profoundly inimical to the security and survival of small states. Amanda, Singapore doesn't normally react to international crises like this, does it? Mm. What's different this time? Yeah, no, quite the opposite. It's, it was a really interesting reaction. And the difference this time is Singapore is a small state and understands its vulnerability, not just in the region, but globally. And, um, it, you know, very unusually, it's chosen to take a much more active path than its ASEAN partners. And, you know, Vivian Balakrishnan himself in his, um, in his very eloquent address to Parliament the other day talked about this as an existential threat, which is how Singapore and all other small states actually should see it because um, if a larger neighbour is allowed to go into a smaller neighbour and just invade and take over with no consequences or, you know, uh, at least not enough consequences to stop it, then what's to stop that happening to a Singapore or to another small another small state. And this is how Singapore views it. Um, it did the same thing more than 40 years ago when Vietnam invaded Cambodia. In fact, that was the last time it imposed unilateral sanctions on another country. That's how rare it is for Singapore to do that. Heve, it is interesting, though, it is, hasn't exactly been joined <laughs> by, uh, by a lot of the other Southeast Asian countries. And, of course, Myanmar is the polar opposite to it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, just on, on Singapore, I mean, now that I'm in Singapore, I'm having a few conversations here and there. And there are multiple layers to this story, I think. I mean, one is obviously that existential angst that is felt by the little red dots, you know, um, being such a small state. <laughs> and also the provenance of Singapore, the way that it um, became independent, having originally been part of Malaysia. You know, they might have Malaysia in mind in some mm. sense as well, or any larger neighbor, not only sort of China or drawing that parallel between Russia and China. Um, so there is something to do with the history and provenance of Singapore and not that there's an immediate threat um, by any of uh, Singapore's direct neighbours on uh, Singapore's sovereignty. But it's something that if you uh, allow the rules-based order or principles of in territorial integrity to erode over time, it, it could become a problem 50 years or in, in 60 years or down, down the line. There's also the fact that, I mean, Singapore remains incredibly enmeshed in global financial markets um, and, and Western financial markets. So one way or the other, um, among Southeast Asian countries, it probably was going to be uh, uh, the most impacted by the, the secondary impacts of the of the sanctions announced by Europe and the US. So rather than being seen to be reactive to that, it, Singapore prefers to be proactive, front-footed, show that it has principle because it doesn't look or it doesn't like show, showing that it's kowtowing to the US or the West on, on, on issues. So it wants mm. to actually, in some ways, prove that it's just as principled. So I think that I, I do think there is a layer of real principle, existential angst involved. There's there's a little bit of you know history with Malaysia involved, and then there is also the the, the reality that Singapore is just incredibly dependent on financial markets, and the, and the totality and comprehensiveness of those sanctions against Russia will impact Singapore. And one way or the other, it would have had to adhere to those sanctions. So oh, very interesting. Um, I think that's what's going on. In, in a broader grouping, I mean, obviously, yes, neutrality is the default uh, standpoint for much of Southeast Asia when it comes to 
great power uh, divisions and rivalries, and that's no different when you look at Russia. But it does actually show how much ballast Russia still has in this part of the world as an arms provider, but also as, as, mm -hmm. as a country that has invested quite a bit of energy, uh, Putin in his first presidency, in rekindling those old Soviet ties and treaties with countries like Vietnam, uh, India, uh, China, North Korea, um, and, and Russia is the second largest mm. arms provider in, in the region for much of mainland Asia, everyone from Mongolia to India, right? So there is a, a lot of ballast that Russia he has here, even though it operates uh, largely under the radar. Okay, look, I just before I let you go, uh, have a uh, Yoon Suk Yol's victory in South Korea, um, quite an amazing election, actually, but he won by 1%. Uh, how divided is South Korea at the moment in your judgment? I think it's very divided. Um, it's a, it's a, it's very polarised, um, and you, you you see that in the result. I mean, he won um, Yoon, Yoon Suk Yeol uh, from the People's Power, Power Party, um, won by less than one percent over um, his rival uh, Lee Jae Myung uh, of the um, Minju Party. So that's uh, President Park's um, uh, exist uh, President Moon, sorry's uh, party. Um, so you know, and and, and it, it made that is it, there was a third candidate that won 2.3% of the votes, um, who was on the sort of alt-left and uh, so a bit of a sort of Ralph Nader in Florida effect where had that gone to um, Lee, they may well have retained um, their power. But there's a bit of exhaustion for the Minju party, but it's 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 basically K-Trumpism is what they're calling it. So you've got K-pop and now you've got K-Trumpism. <laughs> um, you've got uh, um, uh, you know, pres uh, so the now incoming President Yoon is uh, is is a very interesting uh, fellow. He's he's a newcomer to politics. Uh, he belongs to Seoul's elite. He's a career prosecutor. In fact, he worked um, under the um, uh, previous administration um, to prosecute two uh, former presidents, Indeed. conservative presidents. Um, but then he sort of tacked into in, tacked to the right, entered politics, um, and his big flagship initiative was essentially uh, to abolish or to promise to abolish the. Uh, gender Equality Ministry, which he blames for the fact that um, uh, South Korea's uh, fertility rate is so low. So it's one of the lowest in the rate and in, in in the world, I think. Um, so he he, it, it's all a bit bizarre, and it's almost a return to that 1980s corporatism, very macho, masculine, um, a, a nostalgic view of um, uh, returning to uh, you know making South Korea great again. Sure. Not sure if it really uh, will prove sustainable, um, and in any case. Um, it's a very divided polity and he faces a national assembly which is still um, in a, a Minju party led um, so there will be a lot of paralysis for the next mm. two years at least until 2024. Okay, look Amanda Hodge and Heve Lemahieu, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks Jodine. Thank you. Amanda Hodge, the Southeast Asia correspondent for The Australian and Heve Lemahieu, the director of research at the Lowy Institute.